Welcome to Uncommon Sense. I'm your host, Jill Gleba, and we're talking to inspirational, common, and imperfect people just trying their best and trying to gain some uncommon sense. Divorce can be expensive. Max Emmer is a family law attorney and mediator and focuses on collaborative divorce. He encourages the couple to split amicably rather than wasting their money on the divorce and walking away with less in their pocket. Sometimes emotion gets the best of us and we fight over items that are worth less than the legal fees you pay to get them. Max also educates us on why prenuptial agreements are important and brings up issues that everyone has, not just the wealthy. If you're getting married or unmarried, listen in. We have a really interesting guest today, Max Thank Emmer. you. You're already starting with the interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Very. He owns a family law practice. So he does family law. He does collaborative divorce. He's also a mediator, which to me is very important because it's not, he's trying to get them to collaborate and to agree. And because this show is about money and the struggles people have, I would imagine you have a lot of stories about people that have gone through a divorce and that really is a money issue, right? Absolutely. First of all, Jill, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And I think like you, we are dealing with people going through certain times and challenges. My practice a little more. You're with them through many life cycle events. I'm with them through one major one. But I think it's so important for people to have a at least basic mindfulness and intentionality about their money. And I think, unfortunately, you're able to do that on a more consistent level where I'm catching people at crisis mode. Well, they're emotional and they're maybe one of the two of them is very unhappy or maybe they're both unhappy. So that's not the best situation, really. No, and financial stress is one of the biggest drivers of divorce. So you're already taking a emotional situation and then adding a financial powder keg, which oftentimes leads to this explosion. Problem being, a lot of people aren't even aware of their finances when they're now going to go through this major life change, and they're not empowered with the information, the resources, or the knowledge to know what they have, what they don't have, what their options are, and what really is best for them and their family going forward. So there's tremendous intersection between our respective fields and businesses, and that's why it's always great to talk with financial advisors and, and businesses who I work with, because this major life cycle event really affects every area of people's lives. It does more than they think. And we're going to talk more about that because I think after a divorce, like you said, first of all, people aren't even aware about their money. And I would say that's the whole reason I even wrote my book and I do this podcast is because I found this unawareness. I would say in my world, only in my world, I'm going to say over 95% of the people I've come across we're never formally taught about money. And I was going to ask you if you were taught about money when you were growing up. You know, that's a great question. And I think we both probably believe schools and education should emphasize that more. I think there are probably basic financial literacy and whether it be accounting or life financial skills, they're important. You know, I think as we've talked about, you're informed about money during your childhood from your parents for better or worse. And I think most people don't try to do harm, but there's certain financial realities, stressors, anxieties, 
um, lean times, good times that form us. And, you know, I would say for me, I come from a family. My father did not come from money. My father was not formally educated. My dad is a salesman, comes from a family of salesmen and entrepreneurs, which I'm grateful to have learned from that. And I think I really saw a contrast because in the area I grew up in, it was very much mostly credentialed professionals. Affluent people. Affluent people. And so I saw how my dad did things and ran a business and rose up and how different his path and his experience was from many of the fathers and mothers of the people I knew. So I, I think I got a very unique perspective on money and finances and growth and probably a lot different than most of my friends and peers because most of their parents had conventional college, grad school, doctor, lawyer, CPA, accountant. And when I was growing up, my dad's education and business stood out from the rest, which I'm grateful for now because I think it formed me in a lot of ways. But I definitely believe I learned a lot of different things about money and finances and business growing up with someone with that mindset compared to the more conventional educational and career route. Well, to give you an opposite, I grew up in Detroit, and I can't tell you even thinking about or being aware of if any of my friends' parents even went to college or what they did. We didn't even talk about it, which is telling in itself, right? I mean, I think it's better because, you know, I think people should be judged on who they are and not who their parents were or where they grew up or what they did or how totally they were educated. But the fact that they don't talk about money because they probably didn't have any. Right. And, and that's the difference I've noticed as I've grown up over the years is the people that do have money should be, they're not, but they have opportunities to talk. Actually, every parent has opportunities to talk to their kids about money and how they're managing to pay the bills, et cetera. And it's interesting that you grew up in a fluent area because, take this as a compliment, you act like your regular old guy for a lawyer. As a lawyer, you're very down to earth, very easy to talk to. And I'm sure that's appreciated because when people come into your office, I actually wanted to talk about prenups first. Sure. Because you had, the reason I asked you to come on the show is you had some interesting or funny stories about people putting a prenup like weeks before they're getting married. And you made a funny comment. You said, you know, it's interesting. They're arguing over money. And then the next day, they're going to go and get married. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. Sure. Well, first, I would say I appreciate your compliments. I'm fortunate to have parents who raised me well and to be conscientious and to be kind. And I'm no perfect saint, but I believe both as a person and a lawyer, You know, the fact that I'm a little more empathic and personal stands out, and I try to give that experience to both clients and people I work with genuinely. When we talk about prenups, yes, and stories, I never betray client confidences, but as my wife says, I do have the best stories at dinner parties. (laughs) Um, Prenups are a really hot area. I have a lot of theories why. I think part of it is celebrity influence in the culture now and how we all digest news and see who's doing what, who's marrying whom, who their family lawyer is, what they're protecting. And I also think with the advance of technology and the evolution of law and frankly, 
people's expectations of their future successes, they're a lot more of aware of what they quote unquote want to try and protect than people might have been years ago. You know, I say my parents have been married for 45 years. Most people back then got married when they were young. They didn't have they anything. They didn't have anything. Yeah. So yeah. what are we doing now? A lot of people are getting married later. They're more educated. They're further into their careers. They might have family money. They might have business interests or, or, or myriad things. And so there's a cultural awareness about wanting to protect oneself. And so are they protecting money that they might inherit from their parents one day? Or are they protecting money that they already have and they had it before the marriage? And so they want to protect that. So that's a great question. So I can only speak in Michigan. The law in Michigan is quite clear. What is yours before you are married is yours. We don't need a prenup for that. We can make a prenup to make that even more clear. But if you get married on October 1st, what is yours September 30th is yours. Now, if that appreciates during the marriage, the appreciating part is part of the marital estate. Mm. Similarly, inheritance by the letter of the law generally is separate property that is not marital. The problem is, Mm. who's heard of the word commingling? In my world in estate planning, we don't like commingling. What commingling means is you're taking something separate and you're making the title and or identity of it murky at best or combined at worst. So a lot of times what we're doing with a prenup is to have a clear delineation in a document that is stating what do we have now, what if anything we might have during the marriage, and God forbid there's a dissolution, how are we going to do that? And I think one thing that's really important for people to remember, because almost no one I talk to knows this, and I think when you see celebrities in movies, and, and I, always, I always say, you hear the thing, rich family, we'll give you a hundred grand or a million dollars for every son or daughter you give us. A lot of people think they can preen up and contract about their future children. They cannot. Could you put in some sort of Bonus clause, sure, but with respect to custody, parenting time, and child support, those can categorically not be contracted for in a prenuptial agreement because those are the exclusive and continuing jurisdiction of the court. So oftentimes, I will have clients who want to make things about custody and child support and non-family lawyers who will try to put things in that way, and I will advise them this is illegal. And I'd rather save you the time and effort now than you agreeing to things that are going to be embroiled in protracted expense and litigation later. I thought in Michigan, so your money's yours before you get married, but I thought if you have a home and you get married, it's both of your homes. So let's take- I said that improperly, but both of you own that home. So let's make it easy. I had a house before I was married, so we can use me as an example. Let's say the day I got married, there's $300,000 of equity in that home. Irrespective of prenup or not, that $300,000 is mine. But let's say I married for 10 years and that house is now worth $500,000 in equity. My wife is entitled to half of the increase. So she would be entitled to half of the $200,000. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Now, to make it even more interesting, let's say I get an inheritance. And let's say I keep that in a trust. 
But let's say I take $100,000 out of that and I pay down my mortgage or I fix up my kitchen or I do anything to improve the value of my home. That $100,000 that was my separate inheritance is now commingled into the marital estate and my wife is entitled to half. So whether it's inheritance, whether it's a prior business, a really big thing for prenups, I think the most important time to do it is if it's either a second marriage or you have prior children and you want to ensure that your previous children's estate, inheritance, and rights and benefits are not affected should something happen to you through that, that second marriage. That makes total marriage. sense to me because when you're getting married and you already have kids, you want to protect them. Absolutely. Because I always think of prenups, you know, as they portray, like, like you said, movies aren't for real, but they portray someone having a lot of money and how they don't want to, you know, give that away to their spouse. But I've been married a lot of years and we've always commingled our money and yeah. it is what it is. Sure. And, and they, I, one of the first prenups I did, I did it with an estate lawyer who I'm going to say he was in his early 80s. And one of the wisest things I've ever heard someone say about prenups, and I tell clients this when I talk to them about it. The longer you are married, the less worthwhile your prenup is going to be. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> One, who knows what the law is going to change to? Two, who knows what a court's going to think? Three, life changes. So if you sign a prenup in December of 2023 and you get divorced 18 months from now, that prenup's going to be pretty good. You get divorced six or seven years from now, it's going to be okay. We go 10, 15, 20 years out, that prenup's going to probably be worthless. And because a lot of times life circumstances changes. And yes, contract is contract. But if two people get married in 2023 and their life is X and they're married for 27 years and their life and finances change a thousand times yeah, exponentially, the court is going to say that's not fair and reasonable. And really what the standard is with prenuptial agreements is they require complete and accurate disclosures, and they have to be fair and reasonable, and they can't be unconscionable. It's funny because I didn't think about there is a really good purpose for prenups because when you have children, I know movie stars, but let's not go there because none of us are movie stars here. And it's funny because you and I were talking before rolling here, and we we're saying how divorce affects people very badly. Because you have one house, maybe one or two incomes, it doesn't matter. But then as soon as they split up, you have that same amount of money now supporting two households. It's very so straining. Yeah, the, the money's worse. You were saying to me, you couldn't believe how people can afford to even live that way. And you were talking about in general things that right. you've noticed when people come in for a divorce. Sure. And this isn't even political. It's just I think the fact that you would know better than me, Jill, um, you know, I'm not an economist, but I think whether it be inflation or just cost of living, life is more expensive now. And I think we're all feeling it in one way or another. And I always say both professionally and personally, and my wife is so sick of me saying it. I go, I don't know how people afford to live. I was at the Lions game last night, Monday Night Football. Oh, great game. I'm a big fan. Go Lions. Don't judge me for it. The prices are staggering. And I mm. said to my dad, how can a normal person, family of four, Tickets, $20 chicken fingers, $13 beers, $8 waters. I don't know how people do it. So what I do every day, seeing people's financial disclosures, 
and what you do, mm-hmm. I'm always amazed at how people do it. And I love working with financial resources and people like you because people need to navigate these waters. They don't want to. They want to bury their heads in the sands and just think things are going to work out. But when the fact is you're going from a one household, often two income environment, to now two households with the same or maybe less income and more straining on your time, the math just doesn't add up. And so I've really started to theorize, and and I work with people all across the socioeconomic strata. So I think I have a good sense, and I really kind of continually tell myself, how are people doing it? And I think, one, people don't have financial awareness. And I think as a part of that, I think there's three mistakes, and not necessarily mistakes because they're just, they might have to do them, but there's three things that people are doing that I think would shock people. I think, one... Very few people have meaningful savings, which is scary. I think two, people all across the economic scale are living off their credit cards. Mm -hmm. And I think three, people aren't saving for retirement. And I can tell you, I have people tell me this all the time, I handle a fair amount of divorces under 45 years old. So not to age anyone, let's call that on the younger end. My generation and younger, we don't even believe we're going to get to retire. We don't believe we're going to get any Social Security. So for us, I think a lot of people are almost like, I don't have money as it is. Now I'm supposed to kick money into this retirement that's probably never going to happen. Well, it's funny you say that because we're serving clients that save their money. So I have a very skewed vision. But in general, they say that the millennials are saving far more than the boomers did. I don't some, know if it's true or well, not. Well, I think there's some, and there's an acronym, forgive me, I'm forgetting it. It's, it's the people who want to uh, financially independent retire early or something. It's called FIRE. Oh. And it's people who are basically trying to save 90% of what they have. But the problem is when the cost of living is so high. It's hard. You just can't do it. And, you know, I talk about all the time, you know, when we could talk about this all day, but my mortgage rate in my house was 3.1%. My parents' first was, I don't know, 14%. So a lot of older people go, well, seven ain't so bad, but seven wasn't so bad when you could buy a house for a hundred grand. You've never seen that high of an interest rate before is what bothers you used to the low. But also you also used to be able to buy a house for cheap. Now you're Houses paying- Houses are outpriced for the and average so, person. And yeah. so I think, you know, I have this conversation because I'm very consultative in my practice. You know, as a lawyer, I take advisor and counselor very seriously. And while I'm not a financial expert and I'm not the ultimate decision maker for clients, I will have people tell me, especially when they're, let's say, house poor, they can barely afford it while married, in this rate and value climate, they'll say, what should I do? And I'll say, honestly, I think you should rent for a year or two. And I think you're going through such a transition. You've got to figure it out. And you certainly can't afford to keep your house on one income and refi and double your interest rate, plus do an equity buyout of your spouse. And I think divorce is already stressful enough, but now put them in this economic pressure cooker, not to be Debbie Downer. And it's just really- It is a financial hurdle to overcome though. And you're right, most people don't have savings. If they were laid off today, they say most Americans couldn't live more than a couple months on what they have saved. And the credit cards are way out of hand. You mentioned a young couple you said that made, let's say they made hundred grand a year and they had 68000 in credit card debt. And that would give me heart palpitations. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. That means that you spent $68,000 more than what you actually 
had. And you're paying 24% interest on it, no less. Yeah, I'll, uh, just for the record on the show, I'll loan anybody money for 20% interest. Yeah. Just call me. I'm me happy too. To I'll do 19% to underbite you. But I <laughs> now think, you can undercut me. <laughs> but no, I think, and, and, and it's funny because I was talking with a financial advisor because I'm like you, I am a saver and I worry about money and I'm fortunate in that I, I plan and all of those things. And so when I see that, it boggles my mind as I'm sure someone like you do. And what I was told was, Max, I think that people have different realities. You know, for someone who let's say makes $75,000 a year and their career's not going to explode or they're kind of plateauing, if they're in that kind of debt, to them subconsciously, living debt-free is not even, I mean- that's It's not, not even a goal to them. They've gotten it's, so It's deep. not even, it's just so not even on the spectrum that they don't think about it. Whereas, you know, for us as good faith professionals, we want to help people and give them the best advice and counsel and information we can. But I also think you're dealing with people every day from different walks of life, from different realities, from different life experiences. And I think our job is to take all of the experiences and cases and clients we've had. We have to take that universe of data and information. And how can we help curate that for this person here and now? Yeah, and what happens when a couple comes in and they can't afford to divorce, they can't afford to live off on their own. I mean, how do you help them figure that out? So for me, I like to believe and I strive to do divorce differently. I try to help people come up with creative solutions and frameworks to get them through this process without it becoming a six-figure, year-and-a-half albatross and emotional upheaval. Yeah, they certainly don't I'm not knocking divorce attorneys, but it sounds like in some cases I've seen they spend more money than what they have for the divorce and walk away making the lawyers rich and they walk away with no money. 100%. So it happens the fact all the time. that you mediate to me is you want them to get along, come up with a split, make it simple. But I mean, honestly, do you come across a lot of couples that you know they're not going to be able to financially, they got to find a different way or a better way? I offer a lot of, I call it a menu. A lot of lawyers will just say, $10,000 retainer, we're filing a complaint, we're going to be in court for a year. That's the only option. I have different frameworks. I do pre-suit negotiation. I do one lawyer divorce. For instance, I have a couple recently. They agree on 95% of the issues. And the things they disagree on are minor. So one approached me and said, my spouse doesn't want a lawyer. And I said, I cannot ethically represent two people, but here's what I can do. One of you can retain me. I will represent you, but I will meet with both of you. We can discuss the issues needed for your settlement. I will prepare the documents and pleadings at your collective wishes and behest. I will always advise the non-represented spouse. They at every opportunity have a right to seek their own counsel for review and information. And I help them work through the few remaining issues. And instead of paying two lawyers 25 grand a pop, one of them paid me seven grand. So can everyone do that? No. But if they agree on the splits and you just write it up and make it legal, exactly. it would save a lot of money if people could just be a little bit more logical. I say to my clients, it's way easier to be on my side of the desk. Oh, if yeah. I was on their side of the desk, I'd be the craziest person in the world. And I see people going crazy over, for instance, well, my dad gave me that lawnmower. Like they get so caught up in items. 
I have two quick stories that I'll have to tell you because I have a vi- I have a video on my website. I wanted to ask for stories. I have anyway. a video on my website. Don't fight over pots and pans. Say that again. Do not fight over pots and pans. Okay. Because people do it. And people will spend more money on their lawyer and their mediator over personal property. I tell people, you have a family heirloom. You have an art piece. You have tremendously valuable assets or furniture. Okay. But we don't fight over the mundane. I had a property arbitration, which is very unusual. Usually, most people can sort out their personal effects Yeah, I get themselves. this. You get that, right? Yeah. I had a couple. It was a long-term marriage. Obviously, it wasn't about the things, but the things were what there was to fight about. Right. These people could not agree, you know, couches, TVs, yard chairs, you name it. So we had to hire a third-party arbitrator and go to their home. So bear in mind, these are not wealthy people. So they were paying two lawyers plus an arbitrator hourly to travel to their home floor by floor, item by item. I'm talking George Foreman grills. Remember the big box TVs that don't even work anymore? So we're going through this. That's sad to me that they're spending more money than what the items are worth. And for me, I'm not a hero. I am a businessman. But damned be told, I told my client, you're spending almost $1,000 an hour to fight over knickknacks. I don't think that's wise. And part of that is because I'm a good person. Part of it is because I want to protect myself and I don't want clients to be mad later realizing, wow, I just spent three grand on nothing. Right. But my job, and I think your job often too is, we have to be that voice of reason and rationality when people can't be that for themselves. I think I told you um, this story before we were on is that you talked about before people come in, they have to have a list of all their assets and where everything is just so you can split it, right? And we do the same, except in a, for a different reason. But I'll never forget, I had a client that she made very good money and worked for the big three. And her husband was actually the stay home. And we wrote everything down that in categories, emergency fund, mm-hmm. intermediate retirement. And we had all done. And she looks at the list of assets and burst out crying. Yeah. And I just um, let it go. Like you let her, yeah, you let her get it out. Her husband's sitting there looking at me, a little bit uncomfortable, and I said, it's okay. And I said, what's bothering you so much? And she said, well, I work so hard, and there's nothing hardly on this paper. Right. And let's be honest, these were parents that they went on extravagant trips. They spent money, anything their kids wanted. When they were 16, they got a brand new car. Right. So they were spending money like water not thinking twice about it. And then when it comes down to writing down and looking at, okay, these really are your assets, I think it really hit her hard. You know, because she does work very hard for her money, but she wasn't hanging on to it. She was just spending it like out the window. And it was was sad. And then you realize when especially so many people derive really their life and their esteem from their work and you put your blood, sweat, tears, and often decades into it, and while you've lived a nice life and done things, and then you go, oh, wow, I'm getting older, and that's not what I expected. And I think it's just a wake-up call for people. I think, unfortunately, absent the rare, prudent, smart saver, people aren't often shocked pleasantly about their finances. 
everybody, I think, thinks everyone else has more money because that's what's portrayed. You know, whenever you see people, well, I can't keeping say up that. with the Joneses. Yeah, there's a lot of that. A lot of people care more about what others think than just keeping track of their own money and. That's why I do this show. I don't want people to be embarrassed if their friends are, hey, we're going out to this expensive restaurant for dinner. You could say, hey, I'll meet you up later for drinks. I'll come for dessert. Like, you don't need to go out and spend $100 on a fancy meal if you certainly can't afford it. I completely agree. And I, and I can even... I never had money, so that's easy for me to do. And I don't have any shame around it because nobody around me had money. I can tell you this, and we were talking before... I've been in the very fortunate position just between family and work, and I don't think I live crazily, but I've always kind of done what I wanted. You know, I'm fortunate to have a very grounded wife who thinks about things a lot more than I do, and as an exercise of part of what I do and and our relationship and everything, I was introduced by your lovely daughter to our colleague, a woman named Kimberly Demeray, who is a financial literacy coach. And after I'd been sending clients to her, she wanted me to know what she did. And so my wife and I actually worked with her. And while I'm fortunate to say I probably wasn't in the financial straits of most of her clients, it was eye-opening. And I think the biggest takeaway, and I tell people this every day, I told you this before, and, and people who I refer, like anything else, just being aware is so much a part of the game. And I was walking through life just spending and doing things when you actually sit back i'll never forget this i had a wake-up moment about two months ago my wife and i were out to dinner at not a fancy place with my two-year-old son it was a tuesday or wednesday night and we got nothing and it was 55 dollars. and i go i can't do that i can't do it and was it worth it to you is the no, point and my wife and i just go even if we made small little tweaks it really makes a difference. But I think that intentionality, whether it's the stresses of life, whether it's keeping up with the Joneses, whether it's what's going on with the world, we're all in these fogs in one degree or another. And I think, unfortunately, in my line of work, it's that heart resuscitation machine at the hospital where you are jump-started and you are like, oh my God, fight or flight mode, what is going on and what has been going on for the last five, ten 30, 50 years. I think you're right. Like the fact that people come into our offices and they have to write down what they have. Which they've probably probably never never done done. before. Yeah. And the lack of money bothers them because they work so hard for it. And then they start to think about, well, I've got to recreate my income one day. How am I going to do that? The other thing is, you mentioned Kimberly. I want to give her a shout out that she was an earlier guest. She's an expert at dad. Highly recommend listening. She's wonderful. The thing is about divorce, it's, it's very emotional and money is very emotional. And whether your parents taught you anything or not, they did. They taught you right. something because if you grow up with your parents and you see their attitudes about money, right. their attitude could be, I love my job and we have enough money. It could be, I hate my job. I'm miserable, but it makes the money. So I better stay there. Or then there's stressors about money. Or they just hate their job and they don't make enough money and it's all negative. And and that's what people adopt from their parents, whether they like it or not. You had combo parents that one came from money and one didn't, which might've given you some balance, honestly. I think, yeah. And I think it's all about perspective. You know, my mother was comfortable. My dad wasn't. And I think my parents, you know, did a really good job of 
wanting to give me every and any an opportunity, but it's also not just endless. And I think for me, you know, I think everyone probably to one degree or another, unless you're from just such extraordinary wealth, has anxiety about money. But I think for me, I've really grown in the last few years. And I think probably part of it's being a business owner, part of it's being married, part of it's being a father. I think yeah. all of those things. When you become a father, you want to be more responsible. And, and I think it's different and not that I ever do this, but you're not going to go spend $150 at the bar or dinner when you go, well, that could be my kid's 529 contribution <laughs> right, for the month. Right. And, you know, everything I do, and and I'm probably too obsessive, as I say, I'm the person who checks the bank three times a day. I've got to wean off. I might need See, detox. I don't even do that. So let me ask you this. People with children and they go through a divorce, that's probably, to me, the most complicated arrangement. Is there ever a situation where they have to pull out of the kids' accounts to just support themselves because they just don't have enough? I mean, that's a great question. You know, a thing I'm really dealing with lately is 529 contributions and one parent wants them to continue or grow and the other parent says they can't afford them. So yes, that's there, fair. I mean, there that's are fair. a lot of sacrifices I think people have to make. Um, I had a case last year where private school was the only issue we couldn't sort out. And parent A believed the kid absolutely had to stay in private school. No ifs, ands, or but. Parent B said, we can't afford it. And it was a battle. And in Michigan, private school cannot be compelled. And I don't mean this in a bad way. You don't have a right to private school. And frankly, we're fortunate we live in an area with good public schools for which we pay the taxes. Well, could the parent that wanted it so bad, they could pony up and pay for it, right? They they could. But um, when you're joint legal custodians... Um, all agree, major right? decisions, yeah. education, healthcare, religion, you name it. Um, but yeah, I think different parents prioritize different things. And while you lived in one roof, you know, maybe you let things kind of go by the wayside when you're not together. And not only is it affecting you emotionally, it's affecting your parenting time with your kids and it's affecting your bank account. You're going to be a lot more outspoken and opinionated, which I think is reasonable in a lot of ways. I say the big thing now, and this is more of a psychology thing than necessarily finance or divorce, but it all ties in. Kids are way more programs now than they were, whereas when I'm 35, I played tennis or I played golf or I did one thing. Now kids do seven. Mm. And a conversation I am having a lot now is... They spend a lot on these extra thousands, activities. Thousands, thousands per month? Yes. Oh, geez. For people who cannot afford it. And, you know, I will say this. Look, there is studies. Yes, kids being active and engaged is good for them, no doubt, especially during periods of transition. But on balance, if the parents can't afford it, we can't be spending that money if we need that money for the mortgage, for health insurance. For food and clothing. Is tennis more important than eating every night? Right. And I think a lot of times people, and and I think they're good parents, they don't want to change their kids' routines or they want their kids to have distractions. But at what cost? And as I always say, it's good for your kids to have things. But if it's going to make you stressed, that is going to be far worse on them than going to tennis or going to jujitsu once in a while. And that goes back to what we say, being mindful 
of where you spend your money. It's you start everything. looking at where all the money's going out the door due to coming to a planner and trying to save for retirement or coming to a divorce attorney. And you start writing down where your money all goes. And even me, who, you know, I've been doing this all my life, more than the average person, I would say, people have to be more mindful yes. about where they spend their money. Absolutely. And when you start writing it down and having to keep track of it, it makes you realize, and Kimberly and I agree on this, the debt coach, just by keeping track where your money goes or looking at it once a week, and you don't have to write it all down. Just look at your bank account, look at your credit card, where are you spending your money? And just being aware of it does adjust your attitude about money. You're like, you know what? I've got to limit myself when I go into Target because I go in there for 60 bucks, 100 bucks worth of stuff. I walk out with 250 and I got to stop doing that. So people will check on themselves just with the awareness exercise, really. You're right. The two things that's funny that I feel like I have done differently. Um, my wife and I have a monthly meeting around the first of the month. We just do a check-in. We don't do hours, but we just kind of look and we say, what big expenses are coming up? What different expenses are there? Is anything coming off the books? And just even having that we're so much more better prepared and ahead of the game than we were eight months ago. And, and I'm really grateful for that. Thank you for saying that. That's worth repeating, that they meet every month as a couple and talk about things that are coming up. We plan. And I think yeah, life... That exercise is wonderful. I can't tell you. And I think, you know, I'm very fortunate because I have friends and I have colleagues and I have clients who those conversations would not go swimmingly. I'm very fun in my marriage, while I am a saver and responsible, I probably like the nicer things than my wife. But I think that just us checking in and in, and I will say one thing, what my practice has taught me, if it were up to my wife, she would never look at money. She trusts me implicitly. And I believe what I do. And I'm not saying this to make myself a hero. God forbid something happens to me. She needs to know. Mm -hmm. She needs to have a baseline education. And the biggest red flag when clients come in to me, and I'm not gendering it, it used to be a lot more the woman, but it's the man now too. When Simple. one doesn't know anything, it's really scary. And those are the harder cases. And in my personal life, I go out of my way to make sure my wife is informed and engaged because I hope we don't get divorced. Our five-year anniversary is coming up. You know, <laughs> we might renew for another five, but God forbid something happens. She needs to be aware. And I think, you know, again, it's like anything else, whether it's diet or exercise or budgeting, a little bit of effort goes a tremendously long way. And I learned something today. I, there's a lot of prenup stuff, almost as much as the divorce. Yeah, they're becoming and really popular. You mentioned, and I don't want to go too far into it, okay. but I know that people that have been married a long time are going through divorce now because people are living longer and they're thinking, I want to have fun my last 20 years and this hasn't been working for me. So you're running into that too, aren't you? Yes, it's been on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. They call it gray divorce. Wow. Um, I don't use the word trend to make it sound like a fashion trend or something, but people are living longer. People can be healthier for more extended periods. And I think a lot of people are realizing maybe when their kids are out of the house or maybe when they're nearing retirement or, or for a host of reasons, if I'm not happy now, I should try to get happy for this next chapter. And so 
I think that might have been either unreasonable, biologically impossible, or just taboo before. But I think people now really believe I probably can be happier. I shouldn't be treated this way. I don't want to live this way, and I can do something about it. And I always say, and this sounds really hokey, but divorces in and of themselves are not failures. Do most people get up under their altar or chuppah or whatever Mm -hmm. thing, and do they think they're going to fail? No. But the reality is people change, life changes, and it goes on. And I think there doesn't always have to be an enemy. There doesn't always have to be the straw that broke the camel's back. People do grow apart. I see it all the time. That's could, why I it handle... It could be a better situation, too. I handle a lot of amicable divorces <laughs> where the people, they don't hate each other. They are not abusive. They're not the worst people in the world, but they've just said, you know what? We've grown apart. We have different wants. And perfect example, and this is a quick one. I had a woman come to me and she goes, my husband is a great person, but in his older age... He doesn't want to do anything. He has become very just insular and reclusive, and he's not a bad guy. He doesn't hurt me. He doesn't do anything wrong for me. He probably still loves me, but just she wasn't ready to call it a day on her life. It it wasn't working for her. No, and I think we're trying to destigmatize that because I think probably for a long period of time, especially in certain, you know, religious and sociological circles, You know, divorce was this taboo cross to bear. And I think now in the period of people wanting to be happy and healthy, you have to do what's best for you. And I think people just need to know that there are options out there. It could be a positive thing going forward. I will tell you this. I've handled a few hundred family law matters in my career. This is anecdotal. I don't have the data. If you pulled people at least a year out after their divorce, I think the vast majority would be able to recognize it was either necessary and or for the best. That's good to hear. All right. You have to tell us where we can find you. My law firm is Emmer Law PLC. I'm in Bloomfield Hills. My website is www.emmerlawplc.com. My last name is spelled E-M-M-E-R. My office line is 248-859-0015. I can be found easily on LinkedIn. Um, I do do videos. I have more of a face for podcasting, but I do do my best to make videos that are enlightening, showcasing personality while being informative. And if I can ever be of help in a confidential, professional, and personable, and frankly, creative fashion for anybody out there, I'm happy to do it. Awesome. Thank you for today. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Uncommon Sense. I'm Jill Gleba. For more stories and all the financial knowledge you wish somebody had taught you, you can find my book, Uncommon Sense, at jillgleba.com. If you're looking for a career change and you're not sure where to start, the Resume Rescue can help. Sure, there's no such thing as the perfect fit for everyone, but here at The Resume Rescue, we're on a mission to find the perfect solution for you. Whether it's changing careers, updating a resume, learning LinkedIn, or practicing interviewing, we have you covered. Find us online at theresumerescue.com and find all of our contact info in our show notes.